I was just thinking that, um, you know, there's sort of an unfortunate thing that has happened historically, and I don't know if it's just in the North American church, but maybe just the church in general, where church, we kind of think of, that's the place I go to hear a sermon. And certainly, that's, that's a part of corporate worship, but what we just did singing the truth about who God is and what he's like and what he's doing or wants to do in our lives, singing that to ourselves and to and over one another and then taking the Lord's Supper and being reminded of certainly the gift that he gave to each of us individually, but then reminding us of how important our relationships are with one another in the body of Christ. That is church. And truly, I'm not diminishing our need to get in the Word together at all, but if, if all we did was got together and sang the truth about who God is and celebrated the Lord's Supper and served and cared for one another on a weekly basis, that would be a powerful expression of church. So all the more reason for us to gather together, like this isn't a club, this isn't a pep rally, This is us being the church. And what God does in here with us, and honestly, if you're online, we're so glad you're joining us. And I pray that you'll come with us on the campus at some point. But us getting together here, this is what prepares us for doing what we need to do out there. So praise God for this good work that he is doing in us and through us. We are in 1 Thessalonians. We're continuing our study there. And uh, just as a reminder, this is an early letter, probably the earliest letter that Paul actually wrote that we have in our New Testament. He sent it to a church that he and some other guys planted in a city called Thessalonica in the region of Greece, and in that time was known as Macedonia. Last week, uh, Chad took us through a passage in chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, and honestly, we were reminded of this reality in the church, which started then and continues even till today, this idea of suffering. And uh, Chad mentioned to us two groups of people, persecutors and the persecuted. And although we, we don't even begin to approach experiencing what they did. Let's make no mistake that just living in a sin-wrecked, broken world that is under the rule of Satan until Christ returns, um, you and I will experience some expression of persecution, be that spiritual or physical. And so as Chad talked about these two groups, he said the former, that is the persecutors, reject the message and the messengers. So if you experience some of that, like it's not personal. You're just carrying a message to them that they have chosen to reject, and therefore they must reject you as well. But for that latter group, the persecuted, they share in hope and joy with the knowledge of future wrath and glory. God will most certainly judge all who stand in opposition to him. But all of those who have entrusted their lives to him, who have received this precious gift of grace 
and mercy in the life of his son, they will experience glory. They'll spend eternity in relationship with him in his presence and he with them. That was all good news. But it does force us to come to terms with this reality of suffering. I like what J. Vernon McGee has said about what he calls trouble. He says, trouble is the acid that tests the genuineness of the coin of belief. We discover the substance of our faith when our faith is put to the test. Have you seen that in your own life? Sometimes it's kind of discouraging that you sort of wilt under the difficulty of pain and suffering and trials and all that. But what a gift of grace to see that and to ask God, strengthen my faith, grow my faith, cause my faith to bear the fruit it was intended to bear. Only suffering can reveal that about you and about me. So as hard as it is to live in a broken world, that is certainly a gift that God has given to us in the midst of it. Now, as we get into this passage and leaving those first two chapters, um, I wondered this. I wondered, what was it like for Paul when he was whisked out of town, perhaps under the cover of night, for fear of death... Because of the uprising, remember the mob and the riot that took place in Thessalonica just weeks after he had entered there. So they take he and Silas and Timothy out of town and they head to Athens. And I thought, what was that like for Paul? Now, I don't imagine that what I'm about to describe even comes close to what he experienced. But it was a little bit of a window into what he might have felt for me. Uh, there was a day, I've got two memories, just you know, etched in my heart and mind. The first was the first day that I took little Grant to kindergarten. Right over here at Blackman Elementary, and I remember driving through that wonderful loop that all parents of elementary kids have to make, and you wait in line, and finally you pull up, and there's somebody there. They open the door, and I see little Grant, so I'm probably six, Get out of the car with his little backpack. And he says, bye, Daddy. Turns around. He starts walking that long sidewalk into the elementary school. It really did feel that dramatic for me at the time. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there. I'm surprised people didn't start honking at me to get going. But I just couldn't take my eyes off him. He's just so little. So fragile. I thought, what's going to happen to him in the next six hours? <laughs> but there he went, just walking right in, went inside the door, and he was gone. And I remember feeling incredibly vulnerable. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen inside that building, and there was nothing I could do about it. Like, I felt this incredible sense of a lack of control, and I didn't like it. But I had to live with it. Fast forward seven or eight years, my oldest, Blake, dropping him off at college, UTC. And we had a great day getting him moved in and uh, just kind of celebrating this new season of life for him. And, and I remember the very last few moments, uh, me and Kimberly are sitting in our car we just gave him a big hug. He turns to walk away, and there he goes, 
toward his uh, apartment, and he never turned around. <laughs> I mean, I was dying. <laughs> Come on, son, give me some love here. He's on mission, man. He's going to college. Um, but I do, I remember it was that same feeling. What's going to happen to him here? And it's not for six hours. Like, this is life. What's going to happen to him here? I, I wish that I could control it all. I wish that I could take care of his circumstances and his difficulties and all that for him. But I can't. So what can I do? I think that's what Paul was wondering in Athens. He's thinking about this church that he planted and these precious young, immature believers who knew so little, but they believed. And there was a mob and a riot. Just imagine, he's their father, their spiritual father. I think he was wondering, what can I do? And we find out what he did in chapter 3. But I, I feel certain that he felt everything that I felt and more. He was so provoked by that that he launched a spiritual search and rescue mission from Athens. Keep in mind, this is about 300 miles away. They're not texting and sending emails and jumping on social media. He has no idea what's happening to these people. And so look in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I want to get to what he actually does here, what Paul and their missionary group does, but... When I read this passage as I studied it, it it prompted me to ask some serious questions about me. And then I thought, well, why not keep it to myself? Let me share these questions with you and see if it might encourage you. Observations. First of all, Paul is troubled. So our our notion of Christianity being this carefree kind of, nothing affects me at all. That's a joke. He is seriously concerned, troubled for these new and young believers. He says twice, when I could bear it no longer. That sounds pretty heavy. So there's a place for that. The question is, how affected are you by the spiritual well-being of fellow followers of Christ? Like, Do you give that a thought? Or are you primarily thinking about your own circumstances, your own concerns? Uh, Paul had plenty of hard stuff going on, but he could hardly bear what he was thinking about those Christians 300 miles away. 
felt like he had to do something about it. So a great question. These are family. Actually, just take a minute and look to your left and to your right. Seriously. That's your family. You may not even know them, but if they've entrusted their life to Christ, that is your brother or sister as far as God is concerned. So I love what Kevin said earlier about us considering one another more important than ourselves, to actually bear one another's burdens, whether we know them or not. If they're in our family, man, you take care of family. Not only is Paul troubled, but Timothy is authorized. Paul calls him our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's quite a title. And my question is, are you and I willing and able to be sent on a gospel mission like Timothy? You may say, well, I mean, I'm not a pastor. This has nothing to do with being a pastor. At this point, there's hardly even a church. (laughs) This is just a young man who has been equipped to give away the greatest news that ever landed on earth. So are you and I willing to be authorized to go out into the world and bring the gospel? Third observation is everyone in this passage is suffering. No exceptions. And according to Paul, that's no surprise. He actually says we were destined for this. It's just a part of life. And you know, it's interesting when a person has the inkling that they can get out of it, they will do everything in their power to do so. But anybody who just sort of comes to term with the life of living in a broken world where persecution is normal, not exceptional, you know the freedom that they have? You can take my life. And that's a little thing. Because what you can't take is my eternity. So I can just go for it, full on, all out, bring your worst, and I will not stop. Here's the question. Is your faith shaken by your afflictions or those of others? That word shaken is specifically used in the text where he said uh, he wanted to make sure no one was moved by these afflictions, that, that's the word shaken there. Think about an earthquake. And he's concerned that they, they would misunderstand suffering in such a way that they might punt their faith. In fact, at this point, he doesn't even know when Timothy shows up in Thessalonica if there is going to be a church. It may have been so hard, so painful, so difficult that they just said, forget this. I mean, I remember life the weeks before Paul got here, and you know, it was okay. It wasn't great, but it sure wasn't like this. So I'll just go back to business as usual. Timothy could have found that when he arrived, but he didn't. So encouraging. Lastly, the observation is faith is under fire. There is a tempter, and that tempter is tempting He's enticing these believers to an easy life, to convenience, to comfort, 
to safety. And Paul is concerned that they're not prepared for that. The question is, how well are you and I navigating temptation? See, I don't have any doubt at all that every single person in this room has been tempted, perhaps even this morning. And so it's not, have you been tempted? It's how well are you dealing with that? Do you have a plan and a strategy for navigating temptation when it comes to you? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, you're never going to face a temptation that is greater than your ability to get through it. Because God's in control of that. And he will always, always, always give you a way of escape. A way through it. And so when you and I face temptation, are you looking for that way of escape that God has provided? Paul is in trouble. Timothy is authorized. Everyone is suffering and faith is under fire. And it's in that context that Timothy is sent. And he's sent to do two things. To establish and exhort these young Thessalonian believers. He's being sent to safeguard their faith against the threat of affliction. He's not going to be able to change their circumstances any more than I could have changed what Grant's first day at school was like or what Blake's college experience was like. Like I can't control those circumstances. All I can do is speak truth into it and come alongside and say, it's going to be okay. It'll be hard. But God is with you. You're not alone. Uh, Timothy was bringing support. Think of uh, the picture as like a buttress to a building, you know, that provides support for a wall or if you think about those great cathedrals. And this isn't extraordinary Christianity. This is normal or basic Christianity. And the word we use is discipleship. Timothy was going to Thessalonica to make disciples. Now, when we say make disciples, a lot of times we think of they've already come to Christ. But discipleship, biblically understood, is evangelism and equipping. Those are the two words that go under this bigger concept of discipleship. And so there are believers in Thessalonica. They've already come to Christ. Now they need to be equipped. And so Timothy is sent to do that. He's the designated equipper, and he is going to establish them with the only thing that can support their faith, and that is God's Word, not man's words, not Timothy's opinions, not the the most brilliant thoughts of the day, God's Word. That points us back to chapter 2, that there was an understanding that there was God's Word and there was man's Word. Chapter 2, verses 13 Paul said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which Paul, Silas, and Timothy gave to them when he arrived, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, this is no surprise. This is what Paul always assumed God would be doing through 
his leadership. God gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so part of the way God did that was to bring Scripture to bear on his church. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, here's what Paul wrote to his young disciple. Now, that's interesting. This is at the end of Paul's life. He says this, all Scripture, so that's assuming that there is such a thing. There wasn't a Bible, there wasn't a New Testament at this point. But there's, there's an understanding that Scripture exists. It is breathed out by God, inspired, and profitable for four things. Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That was the purpose for Scripture being given. The result, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, For every good work. That's the purpose of Scripture. Now, a great way to remember the difference between those four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Teaching tells us what is right. Reproof tells us what is not right. Correction tells us how to get right. And then training tells us how to stay right. It's really helpful to think about Scripture being used in those four ways. Scripture stands alone all by itself as the standard under which everything else stands. So we evaluate all of our thoughts, all of our ideas, all of what we hear, all of what we see. All of that gets understood correctly through the lens of Scripture. Because it's God's Word, not man's Word. Write down 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He writes, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. By the way, just as an aside, probably not a great question to ask when you're reading the Bible. What does this mean to me? Because it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what the author who wrote it meant when he wrote it. That's what we're going after. So no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Think about a sailboat. Think about wind and rudder. A sailboat without wind and rudder drifts. But with wind, with rudder, it goes to the destination it was intended. And that's what the Holy Spirit provided for those who wrote the Scriptures. That is what Timothy is bringing to bear on this young church in Thessalonica. And uh, I want to go back to what Paul wrote to Timothy later in his life. And, And I'm sure this is something that Timothy heard again and again and again and again Probably he heard it before he went to Thessalonica for this first trip. But 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5, if you're wondering, I wonder what Timothy did when he got to Thessalonica. Here's what Paul told him to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Does that sound at all familiar? 
to our day. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Those were his instructions on this search and rescue mission that he was sent to fulfill Those words offer great guidance to us. Those questions that I mentioned a minute ago, there's a lot of answers to those questions in that instruction that Timothy gave to, or Paul gave to Timothy. When we get to verse 6, we see a transition and we find out that this whole letter was actually prompted by the report that Timothy brought back to Paul in Corinth when he returned from Thessalonica. And Paul is overjoyed. He can hardly contain himself. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. We said earlier, Paul is troubled. Notice he has genuine concern about them, which must mean that that earthquake of suffering that's happening in Thessalonica, surely that could shake their faith. That's what he was concerned about. That's why he sent Timothy. So you can imagine how encouraged he must have been to hear that they were, they were standing fast. They were hanging in there. They were sticking to what they had believed despite the difficulty of it. Paul is overcome with joy, and I think about uh, the statement that John makes in 3 John 4. Like, this is exactly what it is. John said, I have no greater joy than what? Than to hear that my children, spiritually speaking, are walking in the truth. All the fear that, that... Paul must have been feeling for this young church. And then he gets news back. It's like Timothy comes in and says, Paul, you're never going to believe this. I mean, they are just rocking it. They're they're not giving in. They've not compromised. They're still sharing their faith with that mob. Can you see Paul just jumping around? Overjoyed. Couldn't have heard better news. That's the heart here that Paul has. He, he really can hardly contain himself. And then in addition to joy, he, he says that their faith, the Thessalonian faith that they are exercising, that has actually become a source of comfort for he and Silas and Timothy in their afflictions. Just imagine this very young, immature bunch of believers encouraging, comforting Paul. Which is to say, in this room, 
I don't care how long you've been a believer. If you came to Christ this morning, your faith can encourage even the most mature of Christians. Because it's not how old your faith is. It's just, how, it's just the object of that faith. Like if you're trusting in Christ, that comforts me. That encourages me. That challenges me. Because I want to have that kind of faith. I want to live like that. That's what faith does. It's actually infectious. When you and I stand fast in the Lord, we actually, just by doing so, we encourage others to do the same. That's what God intends. That's what makes the church unstoppable. When, when we stand fast, it's, it's, like, it's infectious. It just spreads, and it keeps on spreading. Nothing can stop it. Let's look at how faith spread in just what we have learned so far and then also in Acts 17 and 18. Think about this. Faith led Paul, Silas, and Timothy to make the trek to Thessalonica after being beaten in Philippi. That's what their faith led them to do. When they arrived in Thessalonica, there's no Christians there. Perhaps they haven't even heard of Jesus. But when they do, they're like... Yeah, I need that. I want that. And they receive Christ by faith. That faith, even after Paul and Silas and Timothy are taken out of town hundreds of miles away, that faith that they saw there prompts them to go back, believing we've got we've to support this faith. We've got to cultivate this faith. We've got to undergird it, establish it. And then they get there, and they see that it's actually thriving. They, they still have need of growth and development, but they're doing really well. That faith makes its way back to Corinth and comforts these seasoned missionaries. And they're so encouraged by that that Paul sits down to write a letter to send back to Thessalonica. Timothy, you're going back. And they encourage those young believers for how they are walking. And it is Paul's act of faith to do so because he just knows that's how it works. That's basic Christianity. A couple more questions to consider. Does your way of life model faith that might inspire others to trust God more fully? Now, I, these are hard questions to ask. I don't like to ask them for myself, but I just do so I can keep growing. But let, like, let's just get real here. If somebody followed you around for a week, would your life model trusting God despite difficulty, despite confusion, despite doubts, despite the hardship of life, would they see you just continuing to step into it? Continuing to take risk? Continuing to embrace whatever difficulty might come with staying true to Christ? Would they see that in you and go, man, that's how I want to live. I want my life to be marked by that. If not, don't lose heart, but change. Ask God to change you so that you can live by that. And I can tell you there's no better way to live. 
next to you, pray most earnestly, as Paul said he did, for the opportunity to supply what is lacking in the faith of others. Now again, you you may say, I'm not a pastor. You don't have to be a pastor to supply what is lacking in the faith of another. You just have to be a little further down the road. And honestly, the best thing that you can do is just simply pass along what was shared with you. That's what you have to give away. Be faithful to give it away. Somebody needs to hear about your walk with Christ so that they can walk with Christ in ever greater ways. Now, speaking of prayer, that's actually how this chapter ends. And uh, in this prayer is embedded the heart of discipleship. He is praying for those things that represent the foundation of how the church works, how it does what it was called to do. Look in verse 11. Paul prays, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, certainly, Paul's heart for the Thessalonians, it's in there. You can sense it. You can hear it. You can even feel it. But here is Paul's heart for helping fulfill the Great Commission. That He is praying for things to, to go in the direction of greater faithfulness on everyone's part. He is praying for discipleship. And so the substance of discipleship in this prayer, that's what I'd like to highlight As we conclude, first of all, discipleship is rooted in deep dependence upon God. Deep dependence upon God. It's a prayer, first of all. And it's not the first prayer. We've seen a couple of others and we're going to see some more. You see prayer everywhere in Paul's letters. He specifically asks for God to direct our way to you. Literally clear the way. He's saying, God, would you remove all of the obstructions so that we can get back and supply what is lacking in the faith of these young believers? He's asking God to make their uh, love increase and abound. Now, that doesn't mean they have no responsibility for that. We cooperate with the work of God in our lives. But he is certainly asking God to do something for them that they cannot do for themselves. And then lastly, he's asking for God to establish their hearts blameless in holiness. I think of that as continuing and completing the good work that he began in them. Read Philippians 1. Paul assumes God is at work here, and Lord, I'm just praying that you will continue that work and that you will complete it whenever Christ returns. So there is a priority of prayer, and there's no greater act of dependence than to go to God. And I would even say this, guys. In ministry, talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. Like, start there. Ask God to do what only God can do, and then to involve you however He pleases. 
and he will use you. I promise. If you'll be willing and available, but, but you got to start with an attitude of dependence. Secondly, discipleship is rooted in devoted relationship. Man, I'm just, again, Kevin was reading my mail or something. Uh, that discipleship is a relational thing. This isn't a machine. This isn't just some corporate organization. This is a family And it's a family that absolutely depends upon devoted relationship, where we're committed to one another. The model, so interesting here, that Paul refers to God the Father and God the Son. Anyone who says there's there's no such thing as a trinity, I know the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned here, but you most definitely, Paul goes out of his way to explicitly reference God the Father and God the Son. And he's asking them to do what only they can do. And they exist in perfect relationship. That's actually the relationship that we're striving to emulate. We want to have that kind of unity. And then he prays that God will establish them in their love for one another and for all. You can put that under the banner of neighborly love. Remember the commands, love your God and love your neighbor. And your neighbor is sitting in this room and your neighbor is somewhere out there where you live, work, and play. And Paul assumes that if discipleship is to occur, evangelism and equipping, it happens in the context of neighborly love. Next, discipleship is rooted in the personal pursuit of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. We say here that life change is a way of life. If you're not changing, something's wrong. That that means it's unhealthy. So we're all changing. We're all pursuing spiritual formation. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And nothing reveals the true inner person like the furnace of affliction. If you're wondering, how do I need to grow? One place to look look at is how you respond to the hardships of life. It's a great place to see how you need to grow. And then to invite God into that and say, help me. I want to respond better to life in a broken world. I want to live by faith. Not in myself, not in my own resources, not in what I can control, but in you. Opportunities for growth. Paul speaks of increase and abound in love. That assumes growth. That that their love, their neighborly love would grow. Talks about establishing your hearts blameless in holiness Like, I'm not there yet, are you? So we just get to keep progressing toward greater and greater Christ-likeness. One commentator said this, Blameless, sanctified hearts, he puts these two ideas together, can only grow and bloom in the soil of genuine and abundant love. That's God's formula for life until he returns. Discipleship, spiritual formation. Lastly, discipleship is rooted in the confident expectation 
of Christ's return. This is the third chapter and the third time that Paul references the return of Christ. And in chapter 4 and 5, we're going to get a lot more instruction, a lot more detail about what that involves. But once again, he's saying discipleship has as its destination the return of Christ. So anything that we're doing to grow and to serve and to care and all that kind of stuff, all of that is looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back And there is a sense of accountability about that. That on that day, I am going to be forgiven for all of my sin. But I am also going to give an account for what I did with what God gave me in this life. It's the judgment seat of Christ. There's actually great possibilities for reward there. So discipleship has that day in view. No question about it. So discipleship is rooted in a deep dependence upon God. It's rooted in devoted relationship. It's rooted in a pursuit of spiritual formation. And it's rooted in the confident expectation of Christ's return. That is what we're about, church. That is helping to fulfill the Great Commission. Being about making disciples to the ends of the earth. I want to finish with a pattern for prayer that I think we can gain uh, specifically from these last few verses, but as a way of inviting God to be God in us and in our church. Here's three things that you can pray for based upon Paul's prayer. First of all, God's intervention. We need it. It is essential. If God does not intervene, then we're in trouble. So you can pray Every day for that. God, intervene in my life. Intervene in my family. Intervene in my church. Intervene in my neighbor. Intervene in my coworker. Break into that place and do what only you can do. Secondly, you can pray for an outpouring of love. And I will say this. Love is not a feeling. Okay? Let's just get away from that idea because I'm called to love regardless of how I feel. That's biblical love. So what we do is we just say, God's called me to consider someone else more important than me. That is an act of love. It's a world-changing act of love. And you and I can pray for that. Pray that God would do that in us. And do that through us. And then lastly, growth in godliness. Ask God for yourself and for others. Lord, help us grow. Help us mature. Help us bear fruit that honors our Savior and accomplishes his mission. God will answer those prayers. There is nothing he would rather do than answer those prayers. On our behalf in the city that we live in. Let me give you a moment to prayerfully ask God what you need to take away from our time in the Word today. And I'm assuming again that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. He has something for you to take away today, to apply to your life. And uh, so ask Him to show you what that is.